Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Adrian Klasa, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Sadly, this is our final episode. But if you'd like to keep up with the latest business news from the FT, we recommend you try our daily news briefing. We'll be publishing some taster episodes on this channel in the coming days, so you can give it a try. But today, we're looking at recent revelations about the plight of Chinese Uyghur Muslims. Growing beards, praying in public, and calling someone overseas. These are some of the offenses for which Uyghurs have been interned in camps in the Xinjiang region of China. These revelations appeared in a document leaked out of China known as the Karakash List. The FT's reporters working on the story are here to tell me about how they discovered the document and who they spoke to. Christian Shepherd is on the line from Beijing, and Laura Patel is in Ankara. So Christian, let's start with you. There have been several different document dumps and leaks about China's programs in Xinjiang and various ways in which the Uyghur minorities are, and other minorities are treated in this part of the country. What do these leaks tell us that's new? The previous documents that came out, published by the New York Times and International Consortium for Journalists, they were really the high-level plans from the top Xinjiang and other Chinese government officials, including President Xi Jinping. And they lay out the overview of what wanted to happen. And what this set of documents tells us is really the ground's eye view of what was happening day to day, how these decisions were made, who was making them, and why were so many, by most estimates, it's over a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in the region, why exactly were they sent to camps? And the things that it reveals is that the reasonings were often for very minor offenses, things that perhaps for the Chinese state could be worked up into things that would be seen as signs of extremism, but in any other society would be very hard to consider as anything that would warrant a year or more in detention. Talk to us a little bit about how you got a hold of the documents and what was in them. Documents were passed to me by a Uyghur activist, Abdeveli Ayup. Uh, he's a linguist who has been living in Europe in exile in recent years. And he was passed these documents from a contact in Xinjiang. And what they are is a very long spreadsheet, 137 pages, which are full of personal information, names, dates of birth, and most importantly, judgments about who is to be sent to re-education camps in this county of Xinjiang, Karakash. And then how can you be sure that they're real? What steps did you take to verify them? Well, there are a number of different ways you can go about trying to verify these things. One thing that we did was go and look at other government documents to check the dates and the language used, see if those matched. They also, because they contain a lot of personal information, addresses, ID numbers, relationships between individuals, those are all things that you can look up on various databases. So we checked, for example, the ID numbers of the people mentioned in the documents against their addresses. If they came up with the same addresses as those online, then that would suggest that the documents are authentic. And for all the cases we tried, that was the case. We also got experts to vet them, experts in China studies. And then finally, we were able to track down some of the family members of individuals mentioned on the list. 
Now, Laura, from your end, you went to speak to people who were living abroad in Turkey, who had family members documented in the Karakash list. Can you tell us a bit more about the people that you spoke to? Who were they? Yeah, so at the start of January, I went to go and see a couple called Abdul Qadir and Ruzunsar, and they're originally from Karakash province. They now live in Istanbul with their three children. So both of them had relatives who were missing. They were both missing both sets of parents and all their siblings. They hadn't spoken to them for years. And they knew about the Karakash list, this list of leaked documents. But when I first went to see them, they hadn't yet found any relatives on it. So I asked them to give me a list of names of all their missing family members, their ages, their children, and that's what they did. A few weeks later, we heard that the woman, Ruzansar, had found two of her sisters. They're called Partem and Ruzniaz. She'd found their names on the list and she gave us the entry numbers. And Christian checked the Chinese records with the details that she'd given us and they matched very closely. The only real difference was that the ages of all the people were slightly out because the list dates back to 2018. That must have been quite an emotional revelation for her. What did Ruzunsa say about her sisters? Yeah, she told me a bit about her sisters, about their personalities, about her relationships with them. It was very sad. I think it was mixed feelings for her. One of her sisters, who she knew had been detained for quite a long time, she actually feared that she might be dead. So in some ways, you know, there was some sense of relief learning that her older sister, Rusniaz, was probably still alive. But at the same time, she had no idea that her younger sister, Partem, would even be considered for detention. She said that she had always kept herself out of trouble. She described her as a kind of sharp young woman. You know, they used to fight sometimes. They used to bicker when they were talking about clothes. It was a very evocative picture that she painted of her and her husband who ran a little bakery together. And she was just completely shocked to find her on the list, to learn that she'd been in detention. And that was very upsetting for her. When was the last time that she'd spoken with Patem in particular? She last spoke to Patem at the same time as she spoke to her parents, which was back in June 2016. Things had been getting more difficult for her family, her relatives back home, and the conversations that they had were often quite mundane because it was absolutely out of the question that they could speak about politics or even talk about the situation in Karakash and what it was like for the family. So she told me that she chatted with Partem about their relatives and about a parcel of clothes that Rosensar had sent over for her family members when somebody was visiting. And, you know, her sister was talking about which things she'd keep for herself, which she'd give to other relatives. It was a kind of normal, quite mundane conversation, and she had no idea it would be the last one that they would ever have. And did she keep trying to reach her after that? Yeah, so she tried several times after that to call, and she got no answer. She said, it said... Every time I rang, that's the Mandarin Chinese for cannot be connected. Eventually, Rosenstar stopped trying. She didn't want to put her family members in danger, and she hasn't spoken to them since the summer of 2016. Christian, were other people's stories similar to Rosenstar's and her family's? Yes, there were a number of cases that were very similar in the lists. Patem's case was entered as number 358 and her offences were down as having one more child than allowed by the family planning policy. That was actually the most common offence and reason given for people being sent to re-education camps. For many years, uh, decades, China has had very strict curbs on the number of children that families are allowed to have. And traditionally, weaker families would be allowed to have more children. But recently, there have been more restrictions on the number of children that Uyghurs are allowed to have as part of this security campaign. 
And it seems that a large number of people on the lists were targeted for re-education because of this tendency to have more than the state thought was the appropriate number of children. Other offences included things like connecting to people overseas. And in fact, in Partem's case, it was noted as a point positive for her later release that she hadn't tried to contact her sister. Other things included travel, growing a beard, praying at home, things that would be considered just a normal part of everyday life or religious practices. And do we have a sense of why China has targeted these minorities in this particular way? What do we already know about how they're treated and how they're perceived by the state? Well, this crackdown really began around 2014. And around that time, there were a series of violent incidents, both in Xinjiang and also across China, which the state says were perpetrated by often Uyghurs or other Muslim minorities. And the response to that was this blanket security campaign in Xinjiang, mass police rallies, a huge bulking up of the surveillance apparatus, bringing in some high technology like facial recognition cameras. But the cornerstone of this whole campaign was a system of camps known as re-education camps. We don't know the exact number because China keeps the details of this system fairly secretive, but there are thought to be over a hundred. And these are often huge complexes that sprung up in recent years where anyone who was thought to be a potential extremist could be sent for re-education in order to try and avoid their becoming a risk to the state. But what we now know through these documents are that the definitions that were used to determine who could potentially be an extremist were things, as mentioned before, that are often very mundane, just everyday practices of Uyghurs. So Christian, you also went to Karakash to see what was going on. I think you visited at least once, probably more than once. What was it like? And did you manage to speak to any people while you were there? It's extremely difficult to speak to anyone in Xinjiang because the surveillance apparatus is so sophisticated that whenever a foreign journalist arrives in the region, they will be immediately followed by state security agents. So Although I was able to go there and move around with some freedom, it's extremely difficult to talk to individuals because any conversations with them could potentially put them at risk. What I was able to see was that there had been huge changes to society. I mean, this is a region which is about 90% or more Uyghur. There were very few working age men on the streets. The neighborhood where a lot of the people mentioned in the list were living, a lot of it had been demolished, parts of it were locked off and seemed to have large security gates, meaning that anyone who wanted to come in and out would have to go through numerous checks. I only saw some elderly or young people on the streets. I was also able to get close to a number of the re-education camps, but not in most cases close enough to actually see the camps because police would set up roadblocks to prevent me from getting any nearer. But you could still see a lot of the changes that happened to society in Karakash. For example, the second largest mosque in the town had been demolished. There was just an empty patch of rubble there. You could see that there were large textile mills near one of the camp locations where Uyghurs were bussed apparently from the camps to produce textiles, which would then likely be sold across China and potentially across the world. 
So this system has really remolded the society in Karakash, which is the point of it, the clues in the name, the full Chinese name is transformation through education camps. And that's what the Beijing government is hoping to achieve. It's to transform large parts of Uyghur society to make it more compliant in line with how Beijing would prefer society to be. In addition to reporting on the ground, were there other mediums that you used to document or to observe how society in Xinjiang had been remolded? Yes, we're also able to find satellite imagery that confirms a lot of the changes that have been taking place. So if you look back to the very start of the campaign, a lot of these complexes that are identified in the lists as being re-education camps just didn't exist. And there's been a massive amount of building, huge sprawling complexes. Often it's a camp and a detention center and a factory all in one area often in industrial parks outside of the town, which are the same areas where the police were blocking my entry. So that also provides uh, corroborating evidence of the location and the scale of the camps. What do we know about the training people receive once they're in the camps and also how they move through the camp system and then eventually back out into society? A lot of the training is around Mandarin Chinese, around Chinese law, around Chinese politics, but it's essentially ideological and it's forcing people to do things like singing songs that praise the Communist Party, to learn, for example, that they are not allowed to hold religious ceremonies outside of those sanctioned directly by the state. So it's forcing the views of the state into the minds of the people who go through the camps. The amount of time that they spend there is meant to be a minimum of a year and can be much longer. Normally, what we can know from the list and from other government documents is that they would spend a year doing re-education, then they would spend a period doing vocational training, which would be to learn, for example, how to operate some piece of machinery so they can be moved on to a factory job, which is essentially involuntary labor. The other option in some cases for people who are released but are still kept under surveillance is that they might be allowed to return to their home where they're placed under what is known as monitoring and control. And that's essentially a probation period where for a minimum of a year, they will constantly be checked on by security forces. And if they were to do anything which would be considered another sign of extremism, they might return to the camps. Have these camps and this camp system been publicly acknowledged by President Xi Jinping or the Chinese government? President Xi has never acknowledged or spoken directly about the camp system at all. But the government and the authorities in Xinjiang have acknowledged the existence of the system. What they deny is that there is any form of abuse happening here. Instead, they say that this is a fairly humane way of tackling extremism. And they would call the camps vocational and education training centers. In fact, just recently, they have said that the camps, although they remain, they're no longer being used for any kind of anti-extremism training programs. They are now purely used for vocational training, although this is something that Uyghur exiles and rights groups believe is unlikely to be true. Thanks, Laura and Christian, and thanks for listening. This is the last episode of News in Focus, but do stay tuned so you can try out our daily news briefing podcast. 
You can also catch up on previous episodes on India's Big Brother state, the role of Antarctica in regulating the oceans, or whether coronavirus makes a global slowdown inevitable. 